Okay, friends, the story begins. We are on the bottom of page 53. And this time for real, we are concluding the Amida. Last week, last week, last time, <laughs> wasn't last week, last time, we began to explore the final prayer of the Amida. Elokai Netzor, God, guard my tongue from evil and my lips from speaking deceitfully. We explained how this is not an official blessing part of the Amida. It's like post-Amida supplication. The Talmud references various personal prayers that sages had offered to God that came from the heart that they would recite after the Amida. And this is actually one of them, and this is the one that had been chosen to be incorporated in the Siddur for the past uh, millennia and a half. We explained that we are basically praying that God help us be humble because with humility comes resilience. Right? One of the lines that we quoted, let my soul be as dust to all. And the commentaries explain that dust is invincible. You can't hurt dust. Let me be invincible. And how do I have that invincibility? Through becoming humble, through humility. If you look at the second um, half of this um, of this prayer, actually, you know, let's read through the whole prayer real quickly. Um, bottom paragraph fifty-three. My God, guard my tongue from evil and my lips from speaking deceitfully. Let my soul be silent to those who curse me. Let my soul be as dust to all. Open my heart to your Torah and let my soul eagerly pursue your commandments. If I'm humble and my soul is like dust to all, I'm not only resilient and invincible, but I'm humble and I'm open to Torah. I'm open to learning new things. I'm open to living a life of service, of doing mitzvahs. As for all those who plot evil against me, hasten to annul their counsel and frustrate their design. Let them be as shaft before the wind. Let them blow away. Let the angel of the Lord thrust them away. That your beloved one may be delivered with the help of your right hand and answer me. Okay. And then we say four uh, different prayers or four different reasons for God to answer our prayer. Number one, do it for the sake of your name. Number two, do it for the sake of your right hand, your your kindness. Your right hand represents kindness. Do it for the sake of your Torah. Do it for the sake of your holiness. There's four reasons why we're telling God, you got to do this. Do it for your name. Do it for your right hand. Do it for your Torah. Do it for your holiness. There's an old tradition quoted in various books stating that anybody who recites these four clauses in the Hebrew um, anybody who recites, I'll, I'll go to the Hebrew in a second, anybody who recites these four clauses will be able to experience the divine presence can experience God let's look at the Hebrew, let's read it in the Hebrew it's the third or fourth to last line right after the period where it says, Ase, do you see the word Ase? Ase, Laman, Shemecha, do it for the sake of your name. 
do it for the sake yeminecha, your right hand. do it for the sake of your Torah. do it for the sake of your holiness. Recite those four things. Say it like you mean it, and you'll experience God. That's what it says. What is so significant about those four things that were you to recite them, you'll get to experience God? What's the big deal? I'll be honest, before I read this, I'm learning a lot with this class. Before I read this, um, I never knew that. I never realized it's such a big deal. Okay, I just you just say it. Like, why is it a big deal? The key to experiencing God is humility. In fact, the Talmud says that arrogance is akin to idolatry. If somebody's arrogant, it's as if they've served idols. Because what is arrogance? There's something else other than God. That's very important. And that, that their opinion really matters. And his name is me. That's arrogance. That's idolatry. We're idolizing ourselves. And when there's idolatry or arrogance, God says, I can't dwell there. But conversely, if we have humility, we can experience God. That's where God dwells. The theme of these four clauses is humility. Because we're essentially saying, God, answer my prayers. But why should you answer my prayers? Not because I'm so great. Not in my own merits. Not because I've deserved it. God, do it for the sake of your name. God, please answer my prayers. Do it for you. It's not me that's going to benefit. It's you. If I live a peaceful life, God is going to benefit. Do it for the sake of your right hand. Do it because you are kind, God. I know even if I'm not deserving, but do it because you're kind. Do it for the sake of your Torah. You want your Torah to be upheld. You want your Torah to perpetuate. Well, that's going to require me having a peaceful life so I could study that Torah. That's going to require me having the finances to enable me to study that Torah or support the study of that Torah. Do it for the sake of your holiness. Allow your holiness to permeate this world. Do it for you, God. That's humble. What we're saying is our success is so important, God, because it's important for you. You want to hear something fascinating? The overlying um, theme of Rosh Hashanah, coronating God. That's what Rosh Hashanah is all about. One of the reasons why we below the shofar. That's our act of coronating God. He's going to be our king. And we're choosing it. We want it. Otherwise, he'd be a dictator, right? Dictator is not the same thing as a king, at least not in Judaism. But right now, the king is in the field during the month of Elul. 
and we have access to experience the king. You don't need an invitation to come to the king's chambers. He's here in the field. Comes Rosh Hashanah. We come to the palace and we coronate him. We accept that we're going to live a year of righteousness, of piety, of holiness, of connection, of joy, of love, of passion, of mitzvahs, of Torah. God is our king. We're going to do what he says. That's the theme of Rosh Hashanah. You see that throughout the prayers. You see that throughout the Talmud's description of what Rosh Hashanah is, Kabbalistic descriptions and mystical descriptions of what Rosh Hashanah is. That's the main point of Rosh Hashanah. Yet, a big chunk of Rosh Hashanah is dedicated to praying for our own needs. One of the most famous Rosh Hashanah prayers that all the different cantors like to make renditions of, Unatana Tokef, Unasana Tokef. You know, right? There's a story behind Unasana Tokef. Are you familiar with that prayer? Where we say, on this day, the world is judged. Who shall live? Who shall die? Who by fire? Who by water? Who will live with poverty? Who will live with wealth? It's a very emotional prayer. What's the prayer about? My own well-being. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to coordinating God? <laughs> I'm now focused on myself. What happened? Do you see the irony here? Rosh Hashanah is about God. And for some reason, the part of prayers that we get so emotionally invested in is the one about ourselves. Well, here's the twist, plot twist over here. If we're committed to God, then it's not really about ourselves. Us having a good year is for God. How could I fulfill my godly mission? Being an ambassador of holiness, an ambassador of light, an ambassador of joy and love, if my needs aren't met. If I'm committed to God, then my success is really God's success. So yes, God, give me a good year. But it's for you. And if we adapt that attitude, it's a very humble attitude because we're not focused on ourselves. We're focused on why we exist, not just the mere fact that we exist. We can experience the divine presence. We can experience the Shekhinah. This is how we conclude the Amida. This is how we conclude the 19 blessings that we that, that talk to our soul, that tell us how to connect to God. That God, everything we've been asking for, yes, it's in our best interest, but it's in your best interest because we're committed to you. At this point in the Amida, take a look on page 54. Take a look at the next page. At this point... In the Amida, the tradition is to take three steps back. 
the Talmud is very adamant about the importance of taking three steps back and waiting, pausing. What's the significance of taking three steps back? I finished talking to God. I finished my supplication. I finished my connection. Walk away. What's the significance? So the Talmud says it's like a... Imagine going to... You, you know, you're, there, there's a there's a rule in Jewish law that you're not really supposed to turn your back toward your rabbi. It's not referring to rabbis like me. You could turn your back to me. I won't get offended. Um, but certain to a sage, when it comes to a sage, you're not going to turn your back to them. It wouldn't be a sign of, of respect, not to them even, but to, to the Torah and to what they represent. I'm talking to God. I'm done. Okay, bye. Just turn around and walk away. I'm not turning my back to God. So we take three steps back. We back away. As a student would from his teacher. It's it's essentially putting a... Um, it's building a behavioral, psychological slash behavioral component to prayer. We start off prayer taking three steps forward, approaching God. Because God is real. This isn't just conceptual or in the books. We're actually walking the motions. Well, we're done. Let's take three steps back. Because we believe God is right in front of us when we're praying. That's one explanation. There's another explanation. I actually like this one. This is interesting. When you daven, when you're talking to God, it's not like talking to any other person. Like there's a certain decorum. The divine presence is there. You're absorbed within God's divine presence. Which, by the way, when we refer to the Amida as tefillah, prayer, tefillah more literally means connection. At this point, you're connecting to the divine presence. When you're done with that connection, you know like when Shabbos is over, you got to make Havdalah, you got to separate. You got to recognize that the Sunday is not Shabbos, they're just not the same. It's not just part of the weekend. There's Saturday and there's Sunday. There's Shabbos, which is sacred. It's holy. It's a day for God. And then there's Sunday, and you have to do Havdalah to separate. Okay, this Amida, when we're saying the Amida, we're in this space of holiness. You got to leave that holiness. You take three steps back. There's a, there's a rule in Halacha, in Jewish law, you're not supposed to walk in front of somebody who's davening the Amida. One reason is because you're going to distract them. But perhaps the divine presence is right there. Why are you getting in the way, right? So when they're done, they got to take three steps back. They got to leave that zone. Right now I can go back to my normal zone. Which, by the way, remember how we said the Amida um, represents or corresponds 
to the to the sacrifices that took place in the temple. Right, there was as soon as the base of Mikdash was destroyed, that's when the Amida was compiled to kind of replace that. The Kohen, after fulfilling their service in the base of Mikdash, how would they walk away from the altar? Exactly how we would walk away from the Amida. They would take three steps back, not to turn their back to the altar. The Talmud is very particular about taking the three steps back and pausing. Pause. Right? In other words, not to convey this message that, okay, I'm done. Let me run away. <laughs> Let me do move on to the next thing. Take three steps back, pause, reflect, be in the moment. And the Talmud is very particular about this and uses very strong language. Why is it such a big deal? And the reason is because you take your three steps back. What happens if you take three steps forward again? What's the message there? Did my blessings really work? It looks like you're going back to pray again as if you didn't trust your prayer <laughs> or as if you didn't trust God listening to your prayer. Did God really forgive me when I said the blessing of forgiveness? Did God really, is he really going to redeem me when I said the blessing of redemption? Is he going to listen to me when I said the blessing of Shomea Tefillah, listen to my prayers? Is he going to really restore justice to this world when I recited that blessing? It looks like you're going back to pray again as if you don't trust your first prayer. You don't trust God listening to your prayer as if you need to keep on going. No, 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 no. Don't take three steps forward right away as if you're trying to jump back into it. Take three steps back. Trust that you've done it properly. Trust that it works. And be able to move on to the next part of your day. Make sense? This is a big idea because what we're learning here is that when you're praying the Amida, we're really in a very different space. When we're talking to God, we have this spiritual space on this physical earth. It's beautiful. We conclude the Amida with a prayer, an important prayer. We ask God to make peace, peace in the heavens, peace on earth. But then take a look at the last second paragraph on, on 54. And this is the final line of the Amida. And this is also how we started prayer in the morning. This is important. May it be your will, Lord our God and God of our fathers, that the Beit HaMikdash be speedily rebuilt in our days and grant us a portion in your Torah. That's how we conclude the Amida. Praying for the Beis HaMikdash. Praying that this holy temple be rebuilt. And by the way, just some, some insight from Jerusalem. Saying this prayer at the Western Wall, at Ground Zero. It's a whole new meaning. It's like, uh, it's right there. You feel that you, it's, it's hard to describe in words. Why are we praying for the base of Mikdash, for the temple, at the end of the Amida? I mean, it's an important thing, but why is it connected to the Amida? 
Well, number one, the Amida is instead of the Korbanot, the sacrifices. Instead of bringing animal sacrifices, as we once did in the base of Mikdash, we don't have that opportunity anymore. We now bring sacrifices of the animal soul. We engage the animal soul in prayer. And that's the Amida. We say to God, we want your home. We've just created this small little home through prayer, small little altar in our hearts. But we want a home where you're physically represented in this world. That's what the Beis HaMikdash is. We want to actually serve you in person. Not just on Zoom, no kidding. Not just on a not just through a book. There's another reason why we say this prayer. Let's rewind in Jewish history. So let me give you an overview of a thousand years of Jewish history. Jewish people leave Egypt, right? 50 days later, they receive the Torah at Sinai. Roughly 40 years later, Moses dies and they enter the land of Israel under the leadership of Joshua. It's then several hundred years later that King David conquers Jerusalem finally. They've been living in Israel, but Jerusalem has not yet become the capital. King David has finally conquered Jerusalem. His son, King Solomon, builds the first base of Mikdash. There's finally a home for God, a permanent home for God. Finally, the whole mission that God promised Abraham, I'm going to give this land to your children and you're going to start, come to fruition. It's a big deal. That lasted for 410 years. At that point, it was destroyed. Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av. It was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babel, the king of Babylon. The Jews were expelled from Israel and forced to live in Babylon. Several decades later, the story of Purim takes place. At this point, there's no Beis HaMikdash. How are we going to serve God? We don't have the opportunity to bring sacrifices. We don't even, we're not even in our land. So that's when Ezra, who was the leading sage at the time, compiled the Amidah. And why was this teaching included? So here's an interesting thing. Why was Nebuchadnezzar allowed to destroy the Beis HaMikdash and to have um, domination over the Jewish people? Why did God allow that? Well, part of it is because the Jews did things wrong. <laughs> but how did he win God's favor? The evil king Nebuchadnezzar. The Talmud quotes from the Book of Prophets three instances where Nebuchadnezzar stepped back out of respect for God. Even though he was evil, he still believed in God, and there were three times where he stepped back for God. He essentially took three steps back, as we do at the end of the Amidah. God said, you took three steps back out of respect for me, I'm going to put you in a position of honor 
And Nebuchadnezzar ended up becoming the king of Babylon, gaining power, and he had the potential to um, dominate over the Jewish people for three generations. Nebuchadnezzar, the next generation, the third generation, who is the granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar? The story of Purim, Vashti, the wife of the king Ahasuerosh. He took three steps back for God. He was able to become the king. And that lasted three generations. And what did that lead to? The destruction of the base of Mikdash. The destruction of God's home. We're saying now, God, we're taking three steps back. Out of respect for you. We're making space for you. But we're doing it. So we can build the base of Mikdash. We're trying to gain power out of reverence for you, but not so we can be destructive, so we can be constructive. The whole Alamida, the whole prayer, the whole notion of connecting to God in a very deep and emotional and meaningful way. We want to gain the resilience, to gain um, the ability to dominate negativity. To build that base and make this. We then conclude. Grant us a portion in your Torah. Because what happens when we have the base Hamikdash? We see the Torah very differently. When you open a Torah, especially with a translation, it could seem very archaic. Right? If you were to open a Bible. You would think, what is this Judaism stuff? Outdated, man. Right? And then what happens is, Sharon, you were mentioning the Tanya earlier. You study the Tanya and you go, oh, wow. No, there's actually more to it. And it's quite relevant. It's emotionally relevant. It's deep. It's meaningful. It's personal. But you're getting just a flavor of it. You're getting the flavor of through the perspective of the Tanya, through the perspective of Hasidus, you're getting a flavor of what the Torah really is. Right? How are God's word, God's wisdom, God's values. But when Mashiach comes and we have the base of Mikdash, we're not just going to have a flavor of it through the perspective of the Tanya. We're going to, we're going to see it in a very deep and meaningful way. We're going to see what the Torah really is. We're going to see what God's values really are. And we start that right now through prayer. We get a glimpse. I'll leave you off with this story. Somebody once asked Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi, the author of the Tanya. He says, you're a scholar, aren't you? Can you explain to me why the Talmud is also referred to as Gemara? Gemara is the synonym for Talmud. Now, we usually look at Talmud as more of the legal aspect of Judaism, not so much the spiritual. Right? It's the laws, the do's, the don'ts, and the reason for them. Why is it called Gemara? And what he said was, it's a Gemara is a compound of Gamar, Aleph. The word gamar with an aleph at the end. Gamar means learn, aleph. What's aleph? Aleph 
stands for Echad, one. It's about learning about God. Even the legal part of Judaism, even the technical parts of Judaism, are really learning about God. We don't see that just by looking at the plain text. We can see that through the help of our sages and through the help of books like Tanya and others. We can appreciate that more on an emotional level through refining ourselves through prayer, sensitizing ourselves through prayer. And we're going to experience the full, full glory and full, full beauty of Judaism with the coming of Mashiach, with the building of the base of Mikdash. Okay, that's my story and I'm sticking to it.